Some of you are going to find this a bit incredulous, but here's something that federal, state, and local governments all tell us to do that we should actually listen to. Eat more fruits and vegetables. You've heard about the health benefits of increasing plant-based nutrients into your diet, but how can you easily consume all the fruits and veggies needed? Well, it's easy. By adding Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity into your meals. Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity is a power blend that has 31 fruits and vegetables in every scoop. Organic vegetables, super greens, super fruits, and super sprouts. It is fortified with essential vitamins plus an immunity boost. And right now, you can get a free two-week supply of Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity by just paying $8.95 for the shipping and handling. And not only that, you'll also get a free frother to quickly whip up your healthy and nutritious grown American drink. Go to grownamericansuperfood.com forward slash John and order today. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. I cannot believe it, quite frankly. How far apart we are on so many things. How they plead poverty. That they're losing money left and right when giving hundreds of millions of dollars to their CEOs. It is disgusting. Shame on them. They stand on the wrong side of history at this very moment. We stand in solidarity, in unprecedented unity. Our union and our sister unions and the unions around the world are standing by us as well as other labor unions. Because at some point, the jig is up. You cannot keep being dwindled and marginalized and disrespected and dishonored. The entire business model has been changed by streaming, digital, AI. This is a moment of history that is a moment of truth. If we don't stand tall right now, we are all going to be in trouble. We are all going to be in jeopardy of being replaced by machines and big business. Who cares more about Wall Street than you and your family? Most of Americans don't have more than $500 in, a, in an emergency. Jay-Z. With your soul like ether Will. Teach you the king You know you nah. God son across the belly Lose. I prove you lost already Brace uh. yourself For the main event Y'all impatiently waiting Tell like me everything With John Fugelsang Now On Sirius XM Progress 127 West, North, South, Florida Our new opening theme 
I embrace y'all with napalm. Blows up, no guts, left chest, face gone. How can I be uh, Wow, that is Fran Drescher. Burner at the side of your dome. A friend of this show. Head of my union. And her speech today set to music by uh, Nick, who you can follow on Twitter at creative, at creative, instead of the letter I, you use a one, create one VE. He put that together and just tweeted out, I got you, fam. That's his beat. I want to hear every major labor speech coupled with a DJ's fat beat uh, at the bottom of it. I think it's fantastic. It engages with, it's a whole new dawn of organized labor. And you know what? I think I kind of like having famous sitcom stars from the 90s be the face of it. So many people will see that clip. So many people will hear Fran Drescher talk about corporate greed and how the people who do the work and prop up the companies and generate the profits do not share in the profits. So many people will hear her say it because she is Fran Drescher and not some anonymous union person who we love and admire very much. That was Fran Drescher earlier today. It's time to slow your binge, everybody. There's a lot we have to get to tonight. And and let's begin. Fran Drescher and the SAG strike. Joe Biden's having a good week. Arizona Representative Eli Crane and the colored people. And I think I'm a little surprised we're not more hyped up about over-the-counter birth control. This is Sirius XM Progress. I'm John Fugelsang. It's a very special Thursday. We have a great show. Chris Household is our executive producer in South Carolina. The great Thea Harper is producing this show out of Brooklyn. We're going to be joined by Heather Digby-Parton on the Republican Party. She has a great piece in Salon. All about how Senate Republicans are growing even more radical now that they're in the minority. We'll also talk to Professor Robert Verchik. He's former EPA official and part of President Obama's Interagency Climate Change Adaptation Task Force about all this damn heat. I'm John Fugelsang. This is Tell Me Everything right here on Sirius XM Progress 127. We're thrilled to have you with us. And all night long, we are going to be serving up Nazi tears Would you like some? Could you use some Nazi tears? We have the sweet kind and we have the salty kind. We serve them both and they taste great. You can even mix them together. Let's get to it. The greed of these multi-billion dollar companies to give a fair wage to their workers. Well, that's the familiar lament throughout American history, isn't it? And right now, maybe if it's a bunch of movie actors spreading it, more of the people who feel disassociated from organized labor as a concept will start to lean in. For the first time in 50 years, the Screen Actors Guild is on strike and will be for the foreseeable future, actually over 40 years. But they are joining uh, all of the writers and the Writers Guild already on strike. And this would be exciting for me under any circumstances. It would be historic under any circumstances. But right now, about 160,000 TV and movie actors are going on strike. Joining the screenwriters, this is the first industry-wide shutdown in 63 years. SAG-AFTRA, uh, two unions I belong to that both merged, they approved the strike hours after the contract talks with the group of studios broke down. Actors are already on the picket line. For a couple of months, you may have noticed, if you watch late-night TV, you haven't seen new episodes of Colbert or Fallon, and that's because of the writer strike. But now the actors are going on strike, too. You will notice effects of this with both walkouts happening on your TV, in your cinemas in the next couple of months. And it's it's not going to be good. You should expect to see in the fall not a lot of new episodes of your favorite returning TV shows. What you should expect to see is a lot of shitty reality shows and game shows 
a lot of reruns, a lot of celebrity wheel of fortunes, you know, um, a lot of game shows that probably ordinarily wouldn't get the call to go to network. But actors are on strike. They will not be able to record film or TV. They can't do promotion of projects, even if they're already finished. Great. Even fewer celebrities will stop by this show. Well, that's not true, actually. They still can. They just can't do it to promote new projects for SAG. We could still invite actors and movie stars on to talk about their careers, talk about politics, and believe me, they will. Fox has already announced their fall lineup, and it's all like Celebrity Name That Tune, Kitchen Nightmares, a David Spade game show. But what's interesting is <laughs> the proposal from the studios to the actors, which you'll hear a lot about because the studio's AI proposal is pretty remarkable. And it'll give you a rough idea of the kind of nonsense that actors are putting up for generations with these uh, contract deals. See, the, 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 their proposal from the studios for AI is we're going to scan an actor's likeness and it's going to be a day of work. You come in and get scanned. We're going to pay you a full day work of pay full day's worth of pay just to stand there don't memorize anything we'll scan your likeness pay you a whole day's work of pay and then they can use that likeness of the actor they have scanned forever in any form in any way to say or do anything they want without any consent without any pay they can make money off the actor's likeness and voice for decades and decades and the actor won't see a dime let me put it this way today's harrison ford's birthday and um, we're going to be talking about that tonight as well. He's 81. All night long when you call in to talk about politics, Trump, DeSantis, what have you. I'm going to ask you, uh, give us your top five Harrison Fords, if you can. Either your favorite Harrison Ford movies or your favorite performances. Because he's given some great performances in films that aren't fantastic. But, you know, whatever your top power... I mean, there's a lot to choose from. I tried to do my top five, Chris. I came up with uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Frantic, Empire Strikes Back, Witness... Blade Runner 2049, Presumed Innocent, K-19 The Widowmaker, where he has that Russian accent one, but he's so good in it, uh, The Force Awakens, Random Hearts, 42, What Lies Beneath, Mosquito Coast, and Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. That's my top five. I want to know yours when you call in. But here's the thing. Have you seen the new Indiana Jones movie? Chris just saw it over the weekend. Um, there's this whole hype about how in the first 20 minutes of the film, they de-age Harrison Ford. And we'll be debating for years how good it looks. Will it look really dated in five years? How do you compare it to what they did with De Niro and the, the Irishman? But here, here's the deal. Let, let's say you're not Harrison Ford. Let's say that you're just an actor trying to get work. Let's say that you're someone who's learning that being an actor is wonderful. Acting is wonderful. But the actual life of an actor is very hard. It's a union where the majority of its members generally don't have regular employment doing the thing they do. So you're a young actor and you come in and the producers want to put a clause in your contract. And it's right there, a little print. Hopefully you have a good agent or manager or lawyer. little contract clause that says they can use your voice and your image, aged, de-aged, in as many future movies or TV shows or video games as they want without paying you any more money, without even telling you. You know the only thing that's stopping the studios from doing that? The union and this strike. They want to be able to scan a background actor's likeness for one day's worth of pay and use it forever in any form without consent or pay or knowledge. See, for the big premium cable networks and the streaming services, you're going to start seeing the effects. This could happen a long time. And what we've heard is the studio's plan with the Writers Guild and presumably with the Screen Actors Guild is... 
to let the strike drag on for a long time, because the CEOs are very well paid and have many mansions, and their goal is to wait until writers and actors start having to lose their homes, lose their apartments, get desperate, worry about paying for their kids' school. Then they'll come back to the table. You should expect to see all the movies you've been looking forward to seeing for the next couple of years. They'll be delayed, most likely. No Deadpool 3 next summer. And any Emmy campaigning by actors is over. The Emmy nominees were announced yesterday. The actors cannot go promote anymore. They can't go out there and campaign. The cast of the movie Oppenheimer, the new Christopher Nolan movie, the film was premiering in London tonight, a few hours ago, and the cast walked out of the film as soon as the news came through, in solidarity with the actor's strike. 43 years ago this happened. Members of the Screen Actors Guild and the American Federation of Radio and Television Artists, that's AFTRA, they've merged now, they were so terrified of VHS and beta. Home video technologies, this all-new thing where you can watch a movie in your home, and this pay television with this cable and HBO. People left the sets, they went to the picket lines, and TV shows stopped. Movie productions stopped. Kind of happened again with DVD a generation or so later. Now, it's streaming. The rise of streaming entertainment has shaken up this business. You got, Barry Diller said today, a complete change in the underlying economics of the entertainment business that had previously held for certainly the last 50 years, if not the last 100. Everything was basically in balance under the hegemony of five major studios. And then, oh, my God, along came the tech companies and Netflix, Amazon and Apple and the fast transformative things that came out of COVID. What he's talking about is they found new ways to screw labor over. I mean, Hollywood knew the writer's strike was going to come. I mean, they've walked out like eight times in the last few decades. But no one thought this was going to happen. I mean, last June, it sort of seemed like it when 65,000 members of SAG voted to authorize a strike. Remember that? In late June, over a thousand actors, including Meryl Streep and Leguizamo, put out a letter saying they're prepared to strike. No one took it seriously. Now it's happening. The Writers Guild of America has just emailed its members saying the studios have proven unwilling to meet the justifiable demands of actors and writers at the bargaining table. This might not seem like it's going to affect you, and maybe it won't if all you do is watch game shows and Kardashians. But, again, the last time both unions went on strike at the same time, actors and writers won a lot of provisions like residuals and pension and health funds. Bob Iger of Disney, he just called this whole strike demands not realistic. Bob Iger of Disney, by the way, was paid $65 million in 2018. That is 1,424 times Disney's medium employee salary. I know, right? I mean, it's been fun defending Disney against Ron DeSantis, but we got to be real. He just signed a contract extension this week that brings his annual salary to $31 million. And he's the guy saying the demands of actors and writers are not realistic. What do you think is going to happen? We want to know from you guys. And tonight with the opening, I've got a few things I want to cover because Joe Biden is having a really good week, a really good week. I mean, have you been paying attention to this? Like we just found out yesterday, consumer price index numbers shown inflation is down to 3%. That's the lowest it's been in almost two and a half years. People are really thinking the economy might finally be recovering. And all these economic developments keep happening. That's really making the administration feel so confident they're using this term Bidenomics. I mean, they're embracing it the way Obama eventually stopped being afraid of embracing the term Obamacare. Of course, you know, student loan payments this fall, that's going to start again. There might be another government shutdown this year, probably will. But again, good things are happening. The economy is looking great. We haven't had unemployment this low since the moon landing. America has the 
best COVID response of the G7 and the lowest inflation of all G7 nations. And today, Joe Biden's in Finland after another win. Turkey has ended the blockade of Sweden. They're joining NATO. Vladimir Zelensky, who's very upset that Ukraine can't join yet, is still saying this is a real security victory. And NATO has said, as soon as your war's done, you're done. I mean, think about that. Five years ago, five years ago, Donald Trump was in the same presidential palace in Finland that Joe Biden stood in today. Do you remember what happened five years ago when Donald Trump was inside the Finland presidential palace? It's when he groveled before Vladimir Putin. It's when he lied and said he didn't believe his own intelligence. I see no reason why Vladimir Putin would have hacked our election. The next day, of course, he said he misspoke and we all got him wrong. But, uh, you know, just we were a laughingstock when he said it. And today, in that same, in that same exact presidential palace, Joe Biden showed up and he just called it out. Not Donald Trump. No, no, no. He called out the man Donald Trump works for. Biden came out today and said that Putin's already lost the war. There's no possibility of him winning. I think there's going to be a circumstance where eventually President Putin is going to decide it's not in the interest of Russia, economically, politically, or otherwise, to continue this war. I can't predict exactly how long that happens. I hope that's true. If it's not, we'll certainly call him out on it. But again, you, you got Joe Biden offering a prison exchange to get Evan Gershkovich back home. He said today he doesn't think there's any real prospect of Putin using nuclear weapons. And uh, he finally called out Senator Tommy Tuberville for his blockade of Department of Defense nominees. We've talked about that a lot this week. I want to get Heather uh, Digby Parton to talk about that as well. Really briefly, here's Joe Biden on Tommy Tuberville talking about how this guy is jeopardizing U.S. security in front of the world in Helsinki. I could also ask you something about happening back home. You're seeing the GOP grappling with tying abortion rights to defense issues, including a block on military promotions by Senator Tuberville. What does this uh, say about U.S. military readiness, readiness? And would you be willing to talk with Tuberville to try to work out some solution? I'd be willing to talk to him if I thought there was any possibility of changing this ridiculous position he has. He's jeopardizing U.S. security by what he's doing. I expect the Republican Party to stand up, stand up, and do something about it. They've they, their power to do that. The idea that we don't have a chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the idea that we have all these, all these promotions that are in abeyance right now, that we don't know what's going to happen, the idea that we're injecting into uh, fundamental foreign policy decisions what, in fact, as a domestic social debate on social issues is bizarre. I don't ever recall that happening, ever. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's just totally irresponsible in my view. And uh, I, I just think that, uh, I mean, I'm confident that the mainstream of the Republican Party uh, no longer uh, does not support what he's doing. But they got to stand up and be counted. That's how it ends. Meanwhile, insanely good news back here in the States today that I got to be honest, I, I kind of thought would get more hype. I mean, if you had told me 20, 25 years ago, like, let's say it's 1997 and the FDA comes out and approves a birth control pill to be sold over the counter. That would be huge, huge. It almost seems like post Roe v. Wade. It just doesn't seem like it matters. But this is clearing the path for women to buy the hormonal drug Opil without a prescription. 
Do you understand what a massive expansion of access to contraception across the country this represents? This has taken decades to get there, but this administration has been fighting and fighting to improve access to birth control ever since the Dobbs decision one year ago. It's going to become available to consumers over the next few months. This is such huge news, the most commonly prescribed contraceptive in America. If you can afford it and you live in the right state, it's the first daily birth control pill sold without a prescription. Think about how huge this is. It's going to be available in early 2024 for purchase at drugstores, convenience stores, grocery stores, online. We don't yet know how much it's going to cost. It's a synthetic version of progesterone. Uh, most prescribed birth control pills also have estrogen. And um, it, it, it's, it's a game changer. I mean, it could change poverty in this country. And the U.S. finally joins over 100 more advanced countries that already allow the sale of contraceptive pills without a prescription. Yeah, we're not leading on this. There's over 100 countries that already do this. We're being dragged into the 21st century by this White House. Individual packs of birth control pills usually cost between $20 and $50 without insurance. So under the federal law, health plans are encouraged, not required to cover over-the-counter birth control without the cost sharing. This is huge. I I really thought this would be the biggest story of the day. I mean, the first birth control birth control pill to ever be considered by the FDA as an over-the-counter option. And I can guarantee you guys, it's it's going to pave the way for more. But listen, I know, I know. Okay, that's good stuff. And Joe Biden had a good week. And, and, and of course, uh, we, you know, this is really great about the pill. But I, I know why you come in here to progress. You want your Nazi tears. You want to laugh at the idiots. And I'm with you. I got your back. We're programming for you. Even if Hollywood's not programming for anybody right now. Um, I was trying to think of who was the bigger dope to share with you this evening, and I, I couldn't choose between Eli Crane and Judge Janine. Uh, if you'll indulge me, let's do both really quick. We're just going to play the very beginning of this. This is Arizona Congressman Eli Crane. He is someone who was uh, endorsed by Donald Trump, who supports the election lies, all the bad stuff. This is in a hearing talking about renaming Confederate bases, among other military appropriation concepts. Give a listen to how he made it special early on. Arizona. Well, Mr. Chairman, though, that was unbelievably inspiring. My amendment has nothing to do with whether or not colored people or black people or anybody can serve. Okay? It has nothing to do with any of that stuff. What we want to... What we want to preserve and maintain is the fact that Uh -uh. our military does not become a social experiment. We want the best of the best. (laughs) We want to have standards. Oh, it's already done. Eli, you're done. Who's in what unit? Get on the ground, put your hands in the air. On the ground with your hands in the air. The Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, the North Koreans, they they are not doing this because they want the strongest military possible. I hope my colleagues on the other side can understand what we're doing. Thank you so much. Mr. Spencer to be recognized to have the words colored gen- people. For what purposes generally seek recognition? I'd like to be recognized to have the words colored people stricken uh, from the record. I okay, you get the idea, right? Now, now I know some of you will say, hey, that, that, that's, that, that's not racist to say colored people. But in fairness, he was literally talking about how affirmative action in the military makes our military weaker and defending the naming of U.S. military bases after white supremacist Confederate traitors. Now... <laughs> They call to have the words colored people stricken from the record. I disagree with the fine Democrats who called for it. No, no. 
Keep his words in the record for all time. Let the record show that in 2023, this petulant prison punk from Arizona would say colored people and think that was okay. Keep it in the record for all time. He's earned it. But that, that's not even the best. Can I, can I give you the best quote of the day? And this is, not, this is not even the good news about Matt Gates, who might be getting investigated again for federal sex trafficking. But no, this, this is Judge Janine. She was on The Five tonight. And, you know, uh, Judge Janine, I don't know. She, somebody hide the boxed wine at Fox News. Just give a listen. Janine, whose show I've been on, I've got, I get along with her fine. Uh, she's not happy. That we have to hear Hunter Biden's name so much. This clip must be heard to be believed. Camera's not working. Where are the canines? Why don't you know everyone who's gone House. through there? It's all hogwash. You vacated the building. It was so dangerous when you saw that, uh, what you thought might be anthrax. And now you don't have anything to say about it. So it's either a cover-up, they're inept, and... In addition to drug testing the staffers, I think they ought to stop lying to us and coming out and saying we know Hunter was there. The reason this is so important is Hunter doesn't get the plea deal if they can pin this on him. And finally, (laughs) why is Hunter Biden always in our face? Why is this guy at the White House? Why is he on Air Force One? Why is he in Ireland? Why is he at State Department dinners? This guy is either a drug addict or a reformed drug addict. We shouldn't have to deal with him constantly in our face. And if Joe has to always take care of his son, maybe you ought to teach his son to take care of his seventh granddaughter and his own child. Here's my question. Um, She follows me on Twitter. Do you think I can reasonably get her if I DM her to come on the show once Fox fires her? Because it's coming. Uh, yeah. Listen, first off, congrats on smearing all the recovering drug addicts out there. Um, but if you don't like Hunter Biden always being in your face, Judge Janine, I can help with that. Stop watching Fox News. Trust me, it gets better. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hey everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele Podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions, have honest conversations, just keeping it real, and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, 
Spreaker or wherever you get your podcasts on. Because you know I love it when you do. Coming next week on the show, Pam Greer. Finally. Trying to get her on for ages. Is that true? You, you, your guess is as good as mine. They said yes, right? Yeah. We but, have it locked in. But there's a strike. I planned a day around it. Oh, with the strike? Oh, with the strike. Oh, well, you know what it will do then? I'm going to write to them and I'm going to say, hey, have Pam come in not to promote the new work. We're just going to talk about politics and about her career up till now. There you go. What could be easier? We just lost Pam Greer. Stamp strike. I take back everything I said in the last segment. All right. I'm so excited. Our next guest is here. She's one of my favorite journalists. I want to quote her before I bring her in. Whatever pretensions the Senate may have once had as the more staid member of Congress, a place where the business of government gets done among sober statesmen, are gone. Now, more and more Republican senators are unserious people putting on a show to entertain their base and keep the Fox News hits coming. Marjorie Taylor Greene would feel right at home among them. That's from a new piece in Salon titled Senate Republicans Grow More Radical in the Minority by the great Heather Digby Parton. Digby is a contributing writer to Salon. She is one of the most admired commentators of the entire liberal progressive blogosphere. She has written so many great pieces for Salon in the last couple of weeks just on the radicalism, Bidenomics, the Donald Trump speed bump, and the Ron DeSantis campaign. It is a Pleasure to welcome uh, one of the best in the game, Heather Digby Pardon, back to SiriusXM. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Thank you so much. And I really do love this piece. You know, we talk all the time about how the the party keeps marginalizing itself and how these DeSantis-like policies of performative cruelty seem to only be designed to get people who are already on their team. And they keep getting smaller and smaller. But as you point out, in the minority on the Senate, it just sort of seems like they've forgotten everything about trying to cast a bigger net. Oh, they don't care about that at all. I mean, you know, I no. mean, there are some in the in the party. I think Mitch McConnell, for instance, mm-hmm. would like to to cast a wider net so that he mm. could have the majority back. Yeah. But you know, by you know the dint of what they've done over the last few years, and this has been growing. I'm sure you have been talking about this as much as I have. That this is a long you know, standing strategy on the right that has just pushed them way, way, way off to the edge. And now you have the fringe, the, the you know, insane people running the asylum. And, and that is exactly what's happened. And we see that a lot. I mean, there's a lot of media about the House. You've got Marjorie Taylor Greene. You've got Matt Gates. You've got, you know, those kind of, you know, nutty. The Nazi clown car. We're used to it. Yeah, we're used to it. Yeah, I mean, we know about that. And it's the Freedom Caucus, and we expect that from them. And, you know, frankly, this has been going on since the Tea Party, right? I mean, we've been watching this for a very long time of them just there's a group, you know, a rump group in the House that is just determined to just throw a monkey wrench into everything, any kind of normal business in the House. Yes. But this is happening in the Senate now. Right. And while we may have, you know, dodged a bullet with people like um, Mastriano in Pennsylvania or, um, you know, Masters down in, in Arizona in the last election, there are a bunch of them in there now, and, and they are starting to flex their muscles. I'm sure people have heard about, you know, Tommy Tuberville from Alabama, who is now holding up all the, all the, the uh, yeah. promotions in the military. Now, this is, yeah, I mean, we've been watching this for a long time, right? Um, that's not something we would have expected 
from the Republican Party in the past. <laughs> what is not? What's what's not, Digby? That you would hold up promotions for military officers in okay. order to, um, you know, promote you know a far right fringe agenda on abortion. That just it was, it would have seemed to be off limits up until recently. But Tuberville yeah. is doing this, and he's doing it against the will of many people in the Republican Party. But he's doing it anyway. He's flexing his muscles, and basically, what he what he wants to do is force the Senate to you know vote against the Pentagon policy that would allow pe- uh, military members to have paid time off and travel expenses reimbursed if they have to leave their installation in a state that has banned abortion to yeah. go have an abortion in another That's state. That's it. Yeah, so, so our military is not paying for anyone's abortion. No. Right? Absolutely. Not paying for anyone's abortion. Just just because these are our troops and these are what these are their wishes and the military is helping them travel to other states where this procedure is still legal. Yeah. Um, you know, Tuberville is only there in the Senate, he kicked out a civil rights hero, a true civil rights hero, Doug Jones. And he's there because people in Alabama know his name from the sports pages. Uh, do you how much of this do you believe is his own initiative, Heather? I, I can't help but wonder how much of this is he's been told that this is your role. You're going to take this argument or as you put presumably at the prodding of a far right ideological staff. I know that, you know, letting criminalizing abortion rights cloud your common sense and be over-prioritized above basic decency is the Republican way. I don't think Tuberville realizes yet how much this is going to hurt the party, and it seems like a lot of Republicans around him don't know it either. I totally agree with you. I mean, I wondered that, too, in the piece I wrote about this. And, you know, I'm going, you know, how much is this is real? Because let's face it, this guy... Tuberville does not seem like the sharpest tool in the shed, right? I mean, at least in terms of politics, he may know football, but I don't really think he knows much about how politics works. And he just seems, it's entirely possible to me that he is just being, you know, manipulated and used by a staff, which is common in the Senate, by the way. I mean, there's nothing unusual about that. But has been there for a longer time and is basically, you know, trying to... Use make the make the Senate into the you know make him as the, the a sort of a freedom caucus of one in the Senate, um, yeah. and so they're doing this, and this is causing a lot of trouble. I mean, I don't know whether or not it really you know affects our national security in any direct. Oh, way. it got Biden had to scold him from Helsinki today. I mean, we're literally being laughed at this by all of our allies in the middle of the NATO summit. Well, it's a joke. I mean, it's it's insane. And, and, you know, and this guy obviously doesn't know what he's talking about. And, you know, that's just part of what he's done. Because the other half of this is that, you know, he has been very upset about the, quote, wokeness of the military. <laughs> oh, yes. And has gone out of his way. And this he said it back in May. And then he just said it again this week that he doesn't think that white nationalism you know, he calls white national. He says, I think of white nationalists as Americans. That's it. He does not think the Pentagon should be looking, trying to root out white nationalism slash, you know, a.k.a. fascists uh, from the U.S. military. And he went, you know, twice now he has gone through this. They've tried to walk it back. Back in May, he said it. And they tried to walk it back saying, well, he just doesn't think that there should be, you know, woke policies in the military or whatever. And then he said it this week on CNN. And it's pretty clear where this guy's coming from, and he's decided to use the Pentagon, which is, this gets back to my original point, which is that 
back in the day, and not that long ago, the military was not something that a U.S. a Republican U.S. senator would mess with, right? I mean, that just was off limits. A place like Alabama, absolutely off limits. I mean, they have big military installations down there. This is like it was like a sacred thing. You just didn't mess with that in order to promote some, you know, kind of culture war. Sure. Um, culture war issue. But he's doing it, and he's not the only one. I mean, these people are these new senators, and, you know, let's face facts, there's some old ones who are doing it, too. Lindsey Graham, cough, Lindsey Graham. Um, and, you know, they are, they are turning the Senate into a, you know, a, an institution that's very much like the House, and that well, sure. is not what it was supposedly designed to do. I mean, the House already feels like the comments section has come to life and just infected (laughs) the body. But you're right. And you said back in the day, I would say that back in the day, uh, attacking Gold Star families and calling prisoners of war losers would guarantee you wouldn't have a place in the Republican Party. But now the performative cruelty of Celebrity Apprentice uh, is the guiding light for a party that... Has no ideology. I mean, they're they're talking about Hunter Biden because they're not talking about policy. So, I, I mean, but you're right. He's he's hardly alone. It's remarkable seeing how much the GOP has been infected with the same kind of mediocre ignorance we've gotten used to. And, of course, I'm talking about Ron Johnson, who I, I first interviewed him 10 years ago when I was on CNN one morning, and I could not believe I couldn't tell if he was stupid or if he was playing stupid really beautifully. And he's it's just very like, hard to tell with that guy. I mean, it really I, is. I, I agree with you. It's really yeah. hard to tell because he has, I mean, look, he, you know, he runs a very successful business. Not that that is, or he ran a very successful business. Not that that's any sign of, you know, unusual intelligence. But there is a part of him that sometimes you can sort of see the, the cogs turning, that there's a strategy there. But on the <laughs> other hand, you know, he invariably goes with the dumbest far-right fringe yeah. ideas that exist out there. And, you know, I look, are we going to argue with him? I mean, he had he won a third term. I couldn't believe it that he actually, you know, managed to eke out the win in 2022, but he did. Um, and, and he, you know, continuously manages to um, sort of put himself over at the far right edge of the Republican Party in the Senate. And he's not alone. I mean, you've got Rand Paul, another guy who, you know, used to be the libertarian voice, right? I mean, not my thing, but there was an ideology behind it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at least pretended to be. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I could, I understood it. It, it didn't agree with it, but I, but I got it. Now he's complaining about antitrust laws impacting college sports uh, when he's talking about, you know, he was at, the, at this PGA, you know, yeah. Saudi <laughs> infiltration to um, Saudi, yeah, the bone saw invitational, yeah. Right. Um, and he said, you know, and he's making, I mean, not that this is surprising, making racist statements. His father was known for, you know, writing basically Confederate newsletters yes. uh, went during his career. But, you know, he says yes. everybody that plays basketball in college is going to be driving a Bentley or Rolls. I mean, we're going to be seeing rap stars instead of basketball stars talking about the college sports being allowed to actually, you know, be compensated for the incredible amount of money that they bring into the media. Yeah. Um, this, you know, 
this guy has gone completely. I mean, he did look at the stuff he did with Dr. Fauci during the pandemic. I mean, he was basically his, his, uh, you know, the the greatest thorn in his side in the Senate. And you know, you have the and, and fundraised off of it, fun, fundraised off of it relentlessly. Oh, relentlessly, absolutely, made a ton of money. You know, and be, you know, pushing as did Ron Johnson, ivermectin, and hydroxychloroquine, and all these snake yeah. oils. Oh, yeah. You know, and then you've got this new guy, Mark Wayne Mullen. I don't know if people have heard of him. He's an actual former cage fighter yes. who became a U.S. senator from Oklahoma oh, yeah. in the last He's election. special. Oh, he's very special. He's a very special, special guy. And, you know, in a hearing, uh, in, in hearing so far, I mean, this is very new, but, you know, just in the last few months, you know, he's out there, you know, basically challenging a labor leader to a cage match. Oh, yeah. And saying that they need to teach Jesus loves the little children, red and yellow, no, black I, and white. In yeah, the after challenging world. to a cage match for violence, he talks about Jesus. I, I call him Mark yeah. Wayne Taylor Green myself. <laughs> yeah, he is. Now, I mean, that is actually that is actually the way it's going. I mean, you know, you see Marjorie Taylor Green. I will not be surprised. I mean, let's hope that the Democrats can hold on to the, to the Senate seats. Uh, they're very, very tight, um, but let's hope so, because if not, she is the most likely candidate for the Republicans, I think, yeah. to run in Georgia. And that is, you know, I mean, God only knows where she's going from there. Oh, let her um, do it. Let, it let, let's see her debate John Ossoff and see how that turns out. I'd, oh, love, I'd love to, to watch that, that debate. You know, yeah, I, I just in case people... although she would be screaming, you know, yelling. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, doing and, you know, basically. And, and John Ossoff would make it look easy. Match. You know, and in case people think that, that Ms. Heather Digby Parton might be being a little too mean or unfair, I want to play a clip of uh, Ron Johnson. And again, when I say he is the dimmest member of the Senate, yep. that's only based on my observations and my brief interaction with him. But this is him on Maria Bartiromo wondering, you know, why Biden hasn't been more magnanimous in his treatment of Trump, you know, <laughs> like Ford was to Nixon, or I'll let you hear the comparison he makes about uh, Preston breaking. You know, President Ford decided it was best for America not to pursue prosecution against President Nixon. President Trump pretty much made the same decision, decided not to pursue any kind of prosecution of Hillary Clinton. You know, Joe <laughs> Biden could have made the exact same decision, oh. but he didn't. He allowed a SWAT raid on a, a very secure residence of President Trump. What uh, SWAT raid? Records, even though he was holding classified records himself. No! Joe Biden was a vice president. It wasn't a SWAT raid. It was a lawfully executed search warrant because Donald Trump had lied relentlessly to your government. And finally, Donald, Donald Trump did not let Hillary Clinton go. His essential argument is, hey, Biden, you have to let the guilty guy go because the guilty guy let the innocent lady go. Exactly. And, you know, this goes on. I mean, this whole denial of the fact and this and this comes from Donald Trump and goes all the way down. The idea that somehow he's being, you know, he's an innocent man being persecuted. At some point, do any of these people, his followers, his cult members, stop and have a moment of clarity in which they go, geez, you know, it sure is a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. A lot of stuff about Donald Trump. I mean, is it all made up? I mean, is this all? What? How big does this conspiracy go? And I get it that there are some people, QAnon types and the like, who basically, you know, say, "Yeah, it's a huge conspiracy. They're all drinking children's blood and God knows what else." But there must be some people in the Republican Party who are backing Trump and who look at this mm. kind of go, "Wait, you know, geez, maybe he really is a criminal." And he is a criminal. I mean, we know this. 
Yeah. And we, you for know, some time now. Cases, you know, I mean, come on. I mean, it's obvious. Um, but they, but there seems to be just this this absolute unwillingness to confront the reality. And it's it's, you know, this is my big question. Maybe you can answer it for me because I really, you know, I really really wonder about this. Tell me. All these people in the House and the Congress and the and the Senate in the Congress. No, they're all doing this, and they refuse to admit that he didn't, that, you know, the big lie that he didn't win the election, et cetera, et cetera. Do they believe it? Or is this just purely a matter of, you know, their own kind of strategy in order to maintain power? I oh, mean, I think, I think in, the, in this case, those can, be, those can be two Venn diagram circles that completely overlap for some of them. But I think in general, I think it's performative. Yeah, I, listen, to me, you know, these people defended George W. Bush for years after there were no WMDs until sure. Donald sure. Trump told them they could throw Bush under the bus. And now you can't find a Republican to defend Bush anymore. I think the exact same thing's going to happen for Donald Trump. It's not loyalty to a person. It's loyalty to yourself and your own ambition with this party. It's a cult of selfishness, which is why they tend to turn on each other. So I think that, you know, just as not all of them are racist, there's plenty of calculated non-racists who play up the racism to try to appeal to the folks back home. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. I mean, this is just, I mean, it just seems so hard to believe <laughs> that, you know, you see these people um, and, and saying the kind of things that you say. When you watch what's going on in the House, with the Hunter Biden stuff and this, yep. you know, cocaine gate and all the rest of these nonsensical investigations that they're engaged in. And, and it's obvious that what they're doing. And, you know, they go on TV and they say it with a straight face. And sometimes you have to wonder, you know, have, is it lead in the water? I mean, <laughs> what is making this happen <laughs> where this, these people, so yeah. many people are willing to believe this utter nonsense. It's this, you know, you can believe me or you can believe your lion eyes. And this is tens That's of it. millions of people who do. It's the great mediocrity of mediocre men. Heather Digby-Parton, it is a pleasure to have you back on our show. What is the best way for our listeners to follow you and keep up with your work? Well, I'm at Digby56 on Twitter. I'm at Digby-Parton on threads. And I am at Salon Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And my blog is digbysblog.net. And I'm there seven days a week. So and I love the blog. I loved your new places. piece on threads and meta. Thank you so much for joining us, Heather. We'll be right back with your calls on progress. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
This is SiriusXM Progress. We are at 866-997-4748. We have a lot to get to in the next hour. Let me go to the phones as well. Marie in Atlanta, thank you so much for calling. Good evening. Good evening. Thanks for taking my call, John. Thank you. Um, I really appreciated what you were saying this, uh, at the beginning of the show, talking about how artists um, are, you know, through the use of technology, their ability to earn money, the the essentially the financial model of being a performer is being changed by technology and um, those who control the means of distribution um, are those who are leveraging technology more and more often to whittle down uh, the amount that the average actor or performer even in the music industry um, can earn. I wanted to point out though that most people don't realize how they're even doing it to themselves. Um, Tell me. The number of videos people post. <laughs> okay. When you post writings, of anything that you put online, um, AI and similar technologies are scraping that data. Sure. Um, so there could come a day where if you had uploaded a, a video of your child singing their ABCs, um, someone could take that video and manipulate it so that it looked like your child was singing some filthy song. Or That's they right. can use the age progression technology in order to have um, your child uh, as, say, a teenager doing something that's vulgar. Yeah, I agree. Um, so, do you think that's about? So I, I think. Do you think we're looking at a world where just you know Gen Z and millennials are going to grow up not really understanding that privacy is a thing the way Gen X and 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 Boomers understood it? They already have that problem. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know if it's a problem. Remember. I think they. I think they just. I think they have a different definition of privacy. I think that people growing up now know that you're going to have your identity stolen a couple times in life. That anything you post on the internet will come back to haunt you. I. I, I think it's just a. We're we're. <laughs> a lot of people are just letting go of what we think that word even means. Oh yeah, they're they're letting go of it, and I, and and I've had you know millennials and Gen Zers tell me, um, you know. 19th century or 20th century notions of privacy are dead and they're not coming back. Yeah. I always respond with that's if you let it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you do have a choice in this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that they don't, I, I think that it's not that they expect it to come back to bite them. It's that they expect that it will have consequences, but they are not yet fully, they're not yet fully experienced in yeah. how. People will behave, people with an axe to grind or some right. particular motivation, who will then leverage that in ways they can't even imagine. So, sure. you know, back in the days when people would send a selfie of their private parts, you know, kids would send it to what they thought was a friend, and it never occurred to them that it would end up on their friend's Facebook page. And then some college counselor or, you know, an admission staff person would come across it by leveraging the friends link <laughs> that people established between their Facebook page. Of course, yeah. now you know. You know, Marie, sending a penis picture is considered a court a courtship ritual in America at this point. I mean, if you're women, any if if you're a woman on a dating app, you're legally a urologist at this point. That's my big issue here, and, and I'm all for it. I think any man who ever sends a picture of his junk, let let freedom ring. Let's see it. Go ahead. Just understand it might be visible to people you didn't really intend. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Marie, it's going to be so ugly seeing how it happens. And I mean, just I only shared the one detail about about, you know, the uh, the CGI. 
Because I think that's something people can grasp onto, how incredibly unfair it is. And again, the studios know how much money they're making off streaming. No one else does. They found a way to get rid of conventional ratings, and so now the people controlling the purse are the people controlling the information. Mm-hmm. And, and remember that in Scarlett Johansson, um, her situation when the pandemic first happened and people weren't going to theaters exposed this problem in negotiation for compensation uh, for main actors in, in studio productions because it was measured by box office results, butts That's in right. seats, right? That's you, right. The thought was you get paid by the number of butts you put in a seat in a, in a, in a theater. And when people weren't, were literally in, incapable of going to theaters because they were closed, um, she was completely screwed out of money. Incredible. Incredible. You know, glad she's here. <sighs> Marie, thank you so much for calling. I always appreciate uh, your take on every issue. You class this joint up a lot, and we don't deserve you. I'm groveling, but it's true. <laughs> Have a good night. Have a great night. 866-997-4748. Hello to Douglas in Chicago. Welcome. Hello. How are you hey. today? I'm better now. How are you? I hope it's Good. I hope it's a very short strike. I feel for all of you on the picket line. I really I hope it's a short that. strike. I'm I'm really scared it's going to be a long one. I think the studios can afford to sit on this a long time, run a lot of shitty reality shows in the fall, and wait for people to start not being able to pay their mortgages to buckle. I, I'm really scared about I mean, it. The only upside is I could catch up on movies I haven't seen, but, you know, I mean, that's a long list, but it would have to be a really long list, uh, long strike for me to get fully caught up. <laughs> I agree. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, let, we need we need to talk about Mitch. Please. We don't talk about Mitch enough. Oh, I know. And Yeah. No, no, no. I'm going to give you my shorthand on Mitch, and it's, it's a little counterintuitive. Okay? okay. Let's go. Let's go. I'm ready I, for it. I don't, I mean, I don't like his policies. I don't like his tactics. I think it's very bad for the country. Yes. But I do but I do respect the F out of him. I truly do. What part about that and do you respect? The, like the way the way you respect Satan harvesting souls no for his dark kingdom? Way, like, but no, but um, let me finish my point. Please. I don't think he has been on his A game recently. Okay. And there's there's a part of me that's a little sad about that. He is not sending his best to compete against the Dems. I would agree. And, and by the way, he would agree. He, that was his I, lament I last fall. I don't understand that. I don't understand that. I mean, there's a lot of speculation about, you know, Biden is losing a step mentally. But I don't think Mitch's heart is in it the way it was 20 years ago or else we'd have a 60-40 Senate. Well, I hate to I, listen. I, I hate to defend. Uh, I, I hate to defend Mitch McConnell, Douglas. And you're you're putting me in a, a really violently ugly position to do it. But he doesn't pick who the nominees are for Senate in individual states. I mean, Mitch McConnell himself complained publicly about the caliber of candidates throughout the midterm election last year because he knew that Herschel Walker and that jackass in Arizona were going to be deal breakers for him. Mitch McConnell saw it coming from a mile away, as did everybody else. So I, I can't blame it on him. Because he's maybe, he's suffering for it. Yeah. Maybe I'm romanticizing the job a little bit, but I still think that the Mitch McConnell of 20 years ago would have 
stepped in a little bit more before any of the Herschel Walkers of the world or the, the guys. Yeah, you might want to lean in a bit more on Ronna McDaniel. Them. You might want to you might want to think about leaning that on toward the chair of the RNC, who knows these candidates are awful, who knows Donald Trump's awful, who knows they can't win, and she keeps on taking their money and letting them be nominated anyway. She's the one, I think, okay. who's hurting the Republican Party more than so Mitch McConnell. So you think she's got, she's really holding the power and Mitch is more... Uh, figurehead at this point. No, Trump has all the power, but she's hurting the party more than Mitch. She's She has more agency in getting horrible people nominated for the Senate than Mitch McConnell, who, I mean, if you're not in the Senate, you don't listen to Mitch McConnell. Trump sure doesn't. Nobody outside the Senate does. Right. Well, that's true. Yeah. Okay. Well, I just, you know, I just wanted to throw it out there. It's a little counterintuitive, but I just wanted to throw it out there and get people thinking about it. I appreciate it. it. Thanks so much. Love it, Douglas. Thank you so much. Have a great evening. Take care. Okay. Quick break. We'll be right back with more of your calls. And I'm very excited to welcome our next guest when we return from this coming break because uh, it's hot. It's damn hot. I don't have to tell you how bad it is. Uh, Professor Robert Virchik is a former EPA official, part of President Obama's Interagency Climate Change Adaptation Task Force. Let's talk a little bit about this record-breaking heat and why heat waves are actually the biggest killer among natural disasters and don't get the credit they deserve. We'll be right back with that and your calls at 866-997-4748. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. If you're listening to us in the United States, including the great state of Canada, you don't need me to tell you how grim the climate is. The summer heat is intensifying across the entire northern hemisphere. Public health officials will tell us the heat is going to kill. We're being told to take all the precautions. I'm coming out every night asking you to please check in on old folks, check in on animals. According to the World Meteorological Association, the past eight years were the warmest on record. And as you guys know, last week, the week of July 4th, we set the warmest date in the history of the planet ever recorded three days in a row, breaking the record with each successive day. Heat broke records around the world in summer 2022. It's getting worse. Professor Robert Virchik is a former EPA official. He's part of uh, President Obama's Interagency Climate Change Adaptation Task Force and the current president of the Center for Progressive Reform. He's one of the foremost experts on climate disasters and resilience and how we must adapt to the planet's consistently warming temperatures the way the world's overwhelming scientific consensus keeps screaming at us. Uh, His book, The Octopus in the Parking Garage, A Call for Climate Resilience, is all about how we can manage the risks that we can no longer avoid in place 
play dumb about. It lays out the options as we face the climate breakdown and talks about how it's always marginalized communities that get hurt the most and bear the brunt of environmental risk. While at the same time, a lot of money can be made from a brand new economy of adaptation. It's a great pleasure to welcome Professor Robert Virchik to SiriusXM. Hey, thanks, John. Glad to be here. Thank you. Glad to have you. Can I ask you, sir, where are you joining us from? Are you okay? Uh, I am. I'm in one of the few places in the lower 48 that is cool at this point. I'm up in Washington State uh, uh, on an island called Woodby Island. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. Well, I mean, I didn't even know that heat waves are considered the biggest killer among natural disasters. We always talk about earthquakes and tsunamis. I've never actually we, we hear grim statistics about how the elderly can really suffer during heat waves. But I've never known before today that that is the biggest killer of our natural disasters. Oh, they're terrible. Now, now I should tell you, I grew up in Las Vegas. I was born in Las Vegas. And so I know triple degree. Uh, yeah. summer uh but we're having right now in las vegas they're having heat waves and in phoenix that are uh, unlike anything they've seen in a very long time and the thing about heat waves is uh you don't always know that people are dying because of the heat wave until yeah. you you look backwards right and so that's that's one of the issues i mean we we had a heat wave last uh summer in in southern europe that may have taken 60,000 lives and and a lot of that is you know people with heart attacks people with other kinds of underlying issues and so it takes a while to figure all that out the other thing about heat waves is that uh, they don't often they're not often attributed uh, to uh, to the loss of material property, if you right. think about it. So so, you know, insurance companies don't pay out billions of dollars necessarily because of heat waves. And uh, and you don't see people losing their houses or entire neighborhoods uh, because of heat waves. And and so, so although. Although obviously lives are the most important thing, our families are the most important thing. Um, when you have the media and insurance companies and uh, and the economy basically looking at heat waves, they they tend to uh, uh, heat waves tend to fly under the radar. But the public health people will tell you, yeah, 700 people a year in the United States die from heat waves, and that's seven times the number of people who die in floods. And it's so limiting, the term as well, because if we just talk about this record-breaking heat in terms of heat waves, I mean, it's really got to be done in terms of the extreme weather that the heat is causing. You know, you don't think of flash floods in Vermont washing cars away when you think of a heat wave. I mean, we have to talk more and more about how these daily disasters are becoming the new normal and how it's just extreme weather. Well, one of the things, yeah, I think that that's really true. I mean, one of the things that uh, that i think is really important to understand is it's you know global warming climate change it's basically about uh, those heat trapping gases since the industrial revolution um increasing the temperature of the planet by about two degrees fahrenheit since the 19th century but then if you say okay so what does that hotter planet result in so part of it's really hot weather part of that's heat waves but it's also really erratic and extreme rain patterns because the more water you have that evaporates the more water you have that's going to come down tumble out of the clouds yeah um, you're going to have more droughts and you're going to have drier seasons which are going to increase uh wildfires 
right? And so all that smoke, that toxic orange smoke you saw in New York City, um, you know, you might not associate that with a heat wave. You might not associate dying coral with a heat wave, or as we say, a marine heat wave. But mm -hmm. all of that is related to just adding more and more heat uh, to a planet, you know, and that's uh, sometimes it's counterintuitive. You can get more snow because of all of this in the wintertime if you adjust the currents or something else because of heat. Well, I know that this year it's kind of special because I know that this is not just the human-caused emissions of greenhouse gas. This is the those gases mixed with the conditions of El Nino. And it's sort of like they're making a supergroup to make the weather a lot more horrible. And, I mean, it just seems from what we're hearing from all meteorologists, these records we're talking about will continue to be broken in rapid succession. Yeah, they're going to be. And, you're, and this supergroup thing is a really interesting way of saying it because... So the first thing you've got is increased uh, temperatures because of because of climate change. Then you have, like you say, El Nino, which is a a weather event that's cyclical. It's um, it's natural, if you will. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and, and, and basically has something to do with the adjustment of the trade winds. And, and, and what it does generally is make things warmer. It's because we've got warmer water in the Pacific uh, near the Americas on our side of the Pacific. Uh, then you got this heat dome effect, right, which people are probably hearing about. That's high sure. pressure that pushes down on top of a city like Phoenix um, that's pushing that hot air down. Now, that heat dome is also caused by warmer Pacific water. All right. And so what you should be seeing is all of these things get connected. So yeah. El Nino is natural, but it actually gets amplified when you have climate change. And these heat domes are also natural, but they become uh, more stubborn and more intense when you add heat to the system. So all of this uh. is a feedback loop going round and round and round. Is it true that more than half of all Americans have somehow been impacted by climate disasters in just the last six weeks? Yes, that's right. That's right. And that's obviously a terrible thing. Okay, I'm somebody who's been through a lot of these things. I, I, I live in New Orleans for the most part, and I went through oh. Hurricane Katrina and so on. Amen. And, uh, and I did the heat waves when I was in Las Vegas. But I'll tell you what, the, if there's a silver lining in that, the, the, the silver lining is that most people in the United States are concerned about climate change or alarmed about climate change. About 60 percent of people, uh, according, right. to according to national surveys. And one of the reasons is that people are experiencing what many of us have been talking about for decades. And I wish we did it earlier. But I, I think the message, the message I try to put in my book, Octopus in the Parking Garage, is that it's not enough just to say, oh, my God, things are awful. And even, oh, my gosh, we did it, so we should feel bad. That, that's not the message. The message is that now that we know these things, we can face them and we can address them. People don't have to die in heat waves. Uh, people can live safely in many flood prone areas. Uh, and the same way with, uh, you know, with wildfires and so on. But we mm -hmm. can't do it by pretending that it's not happening. Uh, we have to address it, focus on it and say, OK, I, I'll just I'll just say this. You mentioned the new normal and I'll push back. Right. I'll say, you know what? I don't know that this is the new normal because I don't know what the future is going to look like from now on. 
Uh, I think we're going to have hotter record-breaking days next year and the year after and the year after. So yeah. this is not what the future is going to look like. You're this right. is the beginning of a change. And if we see that and say, okay, well, I'm going to get on board for thinking about change, I think then we can change uh, you know, the way that our households oh, and so our right. government works. <laughs> I mean, Darwin was all about one thing, adaptability. But of course, there we you know go. Darwin, Darwin was uh, the real hoax. So let me, let me ask you about your book, um, The Octopus yeah. in the Parking Garage, A Call for Climate Resilience. I think I remember this story. For our listeners who might not, can you explain the title? Uh, this is like back in Miami, right? Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, there really was an octopus in the parking garage, uh, and it was live. So uh, back in 2016, uh, there, there's a condominium complex that's still there. I was just there a few months ago called the Mirador, and it has a parking garage. It's right on Biscayne Bay in Miami Beach. And uh, there's a gentleman there who was walking to his car in the, in the garage, and the garage was just full of water, right? And in the water, he sees these flopping rubber limbs, this giant octopus, I mean, like twice the size of an extra large pizza. And it's flopping around there. They get it out. They, you know, they call in people. They get it out with a bucket and so on. But how did it get there? It got there be because of a climate story. So yeah. what happened is there's a, a, a drain, right, that goes from a high end of this garage all the way down to Biscayne Bay. And because of sea level rise and some other things, that the end of that drain is now underwater. And so when a king tide comes up and pushes the wrong way, the poor octopus down in the water gets shoved all the way through and into the garage. And I thought to myself, I thought when I saw this, I said, um, I mean, if we can't keep octopuses out of parking garages, what else can't we do? And I said, I'm going to I'm going to work with that because one of my messages, I mean, what we're talking about, you're right, is deadly serious. All right. But the way to approach it, I think, is through stories that people can understand that aren't necessarily threatening on the first go round. I mean, you've, you've talked about this too. Or, 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 or pedantic yeah. lectures. Yeah. People like stories. They like a little bit of humor. Um, but this is a deadly serious book with all the research behind it. But it's got lots of stories. And there are lots of young people in this book who I interview who are saving coral, you know, uh, by being uh, volunteer divers, you know, or there are people who are working to put solar panels on their on their school roofs or there are yeah. people fighting pollution in Cancer Alley in Louisiana. And these are people that won't take no for an answer and they want change. And most importantly, they're making change. And we can do that, too. So I agree with everything you said. And I, I love how you called that octopus an eight armed alarm bell. I, I think yeah, that's exactly you right. And you've written about this before. You wrote about your experiences with Katrina. Um, yeah. When you say climate resilience, what do you mean by that in the title of your book? Yeah. So climate resilience in a nutshell means bouncing back better. Uh, so here's the thing. The, we absolutely have to cut carbon dioxide, and I hope most of us know that by now. Uh, but we could cut all of carbon dioxide tomorrow, and we would still have 50 to 100 years of heat baked in the system. You know, it takes a while for the planet to cool down, among yeah. other things. Um, so everybody alive today needs another plant. Uh, and, and that plan has to be, as you say, you know, managing the harms that we're not going to be able to avoid. 
And and so what resilience means, whether it's in your own household, whether it's it's, a, you know, your local government or even, you know, President Biden's administration, it means um, developing realistic ways to manage and survive the things that we're talking about so that our society just doesn't bounce back, but it bounces back better. Um, that we're a more just society, we're a society that's got a stronger economy, and we're a society that's more flexible. Because the one thing we know is the future is not going to be the past. Uh, we have to be more nimble. And, I, you know, as you say, I worked in the Obama administration, I mean, at the very largest levels of government, if you will, uh, the most bureaucratic levels. And there are things we can do, you know, at that level, yeah. at the community level, in your own home, there are things you can do. I mean, I, I used to work for Al Gore, and, and I know that oh, there you a, go. Lot of, a lot of climate folk were not always fans of the concept of climate resilience. Some people thought that was uh, kind of surrendering to the problem of carbon pollution. But actually, that, that view has kind of gone away, hasn't it? Well, Al, Al Gore didn't like climate resilience talk. Back then, uh, he I'm, didn't. Talk, I, I'm talking about back in the 90s. Yeah, and yeah. he's changed. In the 21st century, he changed, and I'm happy for that. Um, yeah, but I think, I think a lot of people, I mean, uh, even in my own in my own circles, my own academic circles, I had a lot of people saying, dude, why are you talking about, you know, adapting to this? You're you're throwing in the in the towel. And I would be like, look, I'm not throwing in the towel, A. And B, there are a lot of people, like you say, you know, poor people, people who uh, are on the lower rungs of society, and they're, they're dealing with stuff now, right? And so we got to yeah. fix that. I mean, how, let me ask you on a practical level, you know, how do we adjust I mean, it's one thing to trust overwhelming global scientific consensus, yeah. but you already know the same people who think pro wrestling is real think climate science is fake. How how do we reach across party lines and get people to care when they are fed by oil industry funded skeptics who are paid to sow doubt? I mean, can we just we can't wait for Gen Z to grow up and run the world because they believe it because they've grown up with it. How do we get people who are boomers or Gen X and are still calling it all a hoax, calling it all just coincidence, calling it all just regular weather. Yeah, it's a really it, it's a really complicated problem, but I have seen I think ways around it. So I live in Louisiana for most of the time, right? And and mm -hmm. Louisiana is an oil and gas state, right? And um we have in Louisiana, we have a big problem we're losing we have the largest uh, contiguous coastal wetlands in all of the lower 48 right in our state. Uh, and it's falling apart before our eyes for a lot of reasons, including sea level rise. Um, we uh, have developed over the last few years under, under the leadership, I'll say, of Bobby Jindal, right, a Republican. Uh, we've developed uh, a plan for what is the largest climate resilience project in the world. A project that's going to cost, if we do it, over a hundred billion dollars, probably, uh, to um, to rebuild uh, hundreds of square miles, thousands of square miles of wetlands over the next fifty years. Um, it's baked in with all of the best climate science. This is a state, all right, where lots of the political leaders, at least who are Republican, won't publicly talk much about climate change. Right. But at the same time, everybody, you know, every coastal parish down here 
is majority Republican. That's it. And but you, they, they know. I mean, Donald, Donald Trump will call it a hoax, but then he will use climate change as the reason when he has his people write an application to build a seawall on his Scotland golf course. Like, they yeah, know no, it. That, Their own businesses that, that are adapting right. to it. Their own businesses are adapting, but they know they can't get elected without pushing the anti-science lie. Yeah, and that burns me up, right? All I can say is at this point, what I have... What, and, and I'm not trying to be Pollyannish because I'm, I'm absolutely not. Right. But uh, because we don't talk enough in Louisiana about cutting carbon there, you know, the Democrats do. The rest of them don't talk so much about that. But what they talk mm-hmm. a lot about is getting money to restore the coast. right? <laughs> and um, but but I think that there's a value there that's important on the conservative side. So if I talk to and I have done this, if I talk to individual families or small communities, even in Republican majority places. And I say things like, you know what? Don't we all care about the place that we grew up in? Don't we all care about um, preserving the value of the home that we live in? Don't you care about your (laughs) kids, right? And then people say, oh yeah, there have been a lot of floods. There have been a lot of this, a lot of that. I'm interested in opening a conversation. I hate the high insurance bills. Yeah. And then you don't have to say, I mean, what I what I do not say in the first in the first 40 minutes. Right. I do not say, oh, let's talk about climate change. What I you do can't. is I say I say, let's talk about these other common values that we have. And if we talk for half a year or a year you'll get people to move. Now, I'm not saying you're going to get everyone to move. And we know they're like 20% of the nation. They're not going to move at all. And I don't worry about them. I just I just write it yeah. off. But I yeah. got 80%. I got 80% who will listen in some way. And that's why I wrote the book the way I did. I mean, I hope that the book is attractive to progressives. I, you know, I'm a progressive. I, I should but, think but, so. <laughs> uh, but I hope I hope it's attractive to other to other folk, too. Well, sure, to open-hearted, open-minded conservatives who, who you know, need another nudge uh, and, and untuckerize their minds. I completely support that. <laughs> I like that. What, what, do you, what, do you, what, what do you think of all these lawsuits we're starting to see in various states and municipalities, uh, like Boulder, um, where people yeah. are just directly suing the fossil fuel companies? For their contributions to climate change. I keep thinking this is going to be the next great class action landscape, much like cigarettes once were. What, what, what do you think about citizens and municipalities going after fossil fuels? Oh, I, I think they should. And and I have uh, supported some of those lawsuits. And uh, some of those lawyers involved are the same ones who are involved in tobacco and opioids and and, and some of the other and some of the other cases. There's some really interesting legal theories out there, as you may know, in the United States. Not one of them has succeeded yet. They're often thrown out on procedural grounds of one kind or another. Right. Uh, we've got a U.S. Supreme Court, a federal court here that, you know, that the system that that is not open to that. Um, but I think that at some point uh, we're going to see a, a case somewhere uh, break the dike, the same that way that we saw in tobacco. And that's going to lead to sort of discussions about settlement or discussions about uh, companies being open to more regulation. I'll just say one thing, though, about uh, uh, one other thing about lawsuits Please. in this way. Please. Um, I think they're a really good effort. Uh, if the strategy is as I think it is, 
to to lead to to uh, some larger sort of universal settlement or, yes. or regulation. What these lawsuits can lead to. Yeah, I don't I don't think they're necessarily the fairest way for people to get uh, relief. I mean, you know, you talked about Boulder. OK, so Marin County also has a suit. That's, That's right. not going to surprise you. Um, and there are a lot of places, obviously, with a lot of people with resources and money and lawyers. And if you're lawyered up, you got a better chance. You know, there are not a lot of people in Jackson, Mississippi, bringing these kinds of cases yeah. uh, or, or or in southern Louisiana or in, uh, you know, in some other areas that that aren't as as well um, as well healed. And, um, you know, it's like a roulette wheel when you go in there thinking, you know, it depends on the judge. It depends on the evidence the this and the that and the jury. And so it, it's um, it's not a, a way to shape public policy, but it is a way, I think, to get attention. And and I'm I'm all for anything that that brings more attention to this issue. I mean, it kind of does seem like a way to shape public policy or even to use the options citizens have with the judicial branch to shape corporate policy. I mean, you're, you're trying, obviously, with these lawsuits to get more evidence about how fossil fuel companies have been lying to the public about the dangers of climate change. Exxon knew in the 70s this was real and hid it for years. And I would imagine that, you know, the, the concern about paying damages will hopefully encourage some of these fossil fuel companies to pivot a bit sooner to more renewable products. Yeah, I think I think it might. And and you know, the uh, other interesting thing is some of these some of the newer cases, the Boulder case is an example, um bring up other kinds of claims, you know, claims like unfair business practices, you know, actually, you know, lying about the safety of your product is is uh is itself illegal right you know and so uh, in in some states and so there is some effort they did the same thing with tobacco as you probably know you know trying to argue that the, the companies were being deceitful that they were uh, right. you know even even brought racketeering charges against against some of them you know to conspire in a way and so i think there there's a lot of uh interesting lawyering going on and this is happening outside the united states incidentally too um, and so I think uh, oil and gas companies are, are definitely on notice. Now, obviously, there's going to be folks listening to this who will say, well, this is all inspiring and I'm glad people are doing something. But w what can I do? I mean, the obvious question at this point in an interview is I, I would ask, like, what needs to happen? How can the average person do more to have more climate action? I think a lot of us are so overwhelmed by how massive an undertaking this is and by how indifferent so many governmental and corporate entities are to it, what's the first step for the average person who just wants to start being part of the solution? Yeah, so this is a really good question, obviously. And I actually think that working on climate resilience makes it easier than if we're saying working on cutting carbon, which I'm all in favor of, incidentally. Tell me, I like but, that. Yeah, but climate resilience at bottom is very local. It's about making your home safe. It's about making your community safe. A lot of it involves land use, right? And so uh, you might, for instance, be in a community and and uh, there are land use hearings about whether you know certain areas should be opened up for certain kinds of development. Maybe those are areas in floodplains. Maybe they're areas that are close to where a wildfire might come. Uh, maybe the discussion is, should we have more tree-lined areas in a neighborhood, which would right. create shade and protect people from heat waves? Or just putting awnings on bus stops, for goodness sake, right? 
all right. of those things are climate resilience issues. And what I tell people, I say the first thing you need to do is learn about something, but don't go out and say, oh, I'm going to have to learn all, everything I know about climate. Learn about whatever it is you're interested in. It's, it's so, you know, I interview a, a girl in the book, a high school girl who was interested in, in scuba diving, right? And it mm -hmm. wasn't until later that she learned that that coral reefs were, were being harmed by ocean heat waves, okay? Mm -hmm. And then she starts working in, in, in different uh, ways of raising coral and replacing, uh, you know, raising healthy coil, coral and, and replanting it in dying reefs. Now, it starts out because she's interested in scuba diving and she's interested in finding Nemo and whatever. Some people are interested in gardening. Some people are interested in children's health. Some people are interested in hunting and fishing. And all you need to do is just say, what is it? What is the thing that I like to do and how might it be affected yeah. by climate change and it's and it will be and then you can say oh well i'm going to stick with my same group and i'm just going to add climate change to the mix instead of thinking oh i got to find a whole bunch of new friends who care about climate <laughs> i gotta find it you know whatever you know anything you care about is already going to be affected and uh, so that's learning and then talking about it is super essential um, I told you, and you know this, uh, you know, there's these, you know, many surveys, 60% of the people in the United States care or are alarmed about climate change. Nobody talks about it. Nobody yeah. in that 60% or very few. And they, they don't even talk to people that, that are sympathetic. They just yeah. don't talk about it because they're scared. And so you need to start getting into conversations, bringing things up, and then you need to start doing stuff. And I don't care if it's really small. I mean, I don't care if you're working in a greenhouse or you're volunteering uh, in an agricultural center, helping people pick the better kinds of seeds that, you know, survive in the summertime. That's great. Uh, start there and then, and then build on it later. That would be, that would be my advice. You know, I, I talk all the time here on the show about how when it comes to our health in this country, we have this model where we don't prevent disease, we treat symptoms. Yeah. And and you phrase it very beautifully. You've, you've said um, building climate resilience is like improving your health through exercise yeah. and a good diet. It gives you something to work toward rather than something you're running away from. Yeah, I, I think I, I really think that's right. And that that actually... Um, it it builds into this idea of unpredictability. I mean, you don't eat right because you're trying to avoid a certain kind of cancer. Uh, you eat right because you know that if you eat right, you're going to be like all better kinds off of benefits. Yeah. from all kinds of stuff if I, if I come right. And um, it, and the same thing with education or anything else, right? You know, you're. I, I think when you're working towards something, um, you just feel better about it. And 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 I think the key here is not being scared the um the opposite of despair I, I say in the book is action yes and um it's better to be doing any small thing than than to just be worried about you know the the planet going to hell because uh it, a the planet isn't going to hell mm -hmm. we every day it, this is not a pass-fail test on climate. You know, just because we can't get an A doesn't mean we have to get an F. <laughs> we can get something in between. And and we, you know, we should. We're, we're, we're late off the mark. We know that. But we can do better than what we're doing now. 
Professor Robert Virchik was part of President Obama's Interagency Climate Change Adaptation Task Force. He's the author of The Octopus in the Parking Garage, A Call for Climate Resilience, and he is the current president of the Center for Progressive Reform. Sir, how can our listeners follow you and keep up with all your many doings? Oh, I wish they would. So I have a website, uh, robvirchik, all one word, dot com, and they can get everything there. Brilliant. Such a pleasure having you with us. Please come back anytime. I feel much smarter and more informed and yet not bleak and hopeless. So thank you very much. I'd love that. Okay. Thanks a lot. Bye. Have a great evening. Thank you.